You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. All right. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I want to welcome you all virtually to the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Jake Stokes, and I'm a senior policy analyst in the China program here at the Institute. I'll serve as the moderator for today's event. Last month, Chinese and Indian troops came to blows in their deadliest border incident since 1967. Clashes culminated on June 15th with the death of 20 Indian troops and an unconfirmed number of Chinese troops. The Indian and Chinese governments have provided few details about exactly what happened along the disputed boundary. The two countries appear to have stabilized the situation by starting a disengagement process. But unlike prior dust-ups, this unexpected and deadly turn could signal a lasting shift in relations between the two Asian giants. Specifically, the episode raises questions about whether India and China can return to the tense but mostly stable status quo ante at the border, how the standoff might reverberate elsewhere in the Sino-Indian relationship, and how Chinese behavior toward India fits into Beijing's increasingly assertive, and some might even say aggressive, pattern of foreign policy in its neighborhood and beyond. There have already been a number of useful think tank events held and analytical pieces written on the complex geography of the area and the tactical and operational details of events on the ground Uh, Several of the best were written by our panelists with us here today, uh, but we won't recreate those. Instead, uh, today's event will try to take a wider view and consider how recent developments will shape the the big geopolitical trends in Asia. To discuss these topics, we're delighted to have with us today a stellar set of panelists who I'll just introduce briefly so we can maximize the amount of time we get to hear from them. First, we have Dr. Tanvi Madan. Tanvi is a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy in the Foreign Policy Program and director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution. She is the author of the recent fantastic book, Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War. Next, we have Dr. Taylor Fravel. Taylor is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and director of the Security Studies Program at MIT. His most recent book is Active Defense, China's Military Strategy Since 1949. Uh, And pertinent to this discussion, Taylor also wrote what has become the classic study on China's handling of territorial disputes titled Strong Borders, Secure Nation. Finally, we have Vikram Singh. Vikram is a senior advisor in the Asia Center here at USIP, where he works on a range of issues related to peace and stability in Asia. In addition to his research work, he has had a distinguished career in the US government, including tours at the Departments of State and Defense. Most recently, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, which is the department's top official focused on the region. All right, so here's the plan for how we'll proceed. I will pose questions to the panelists for the first 45 minutes or so of the event, and then take questions from the audience online. You can tweet your questions to us using the hashtag IndiaChinaUSIP, or you can write your uh, questions in the box you should be able to see um, on your screen. We, uh, and with that, we'll jump right into it. Um, I'll direct each question to one of the panelists, but I invite the others to jump in 
um, if they have thoughts as well, and we'll try to make this a conversation. Uh, Tongvi, let's start with you. Uh, given recent events, what are the prospects for a more permanent resolution of, Sino of the Sino-Indian border dispute? Uh, and I guess more specifically, what are the principles analysts have proposed for some sort of resolution and the sort of uh, relative interest on each side to get there? Um, and, and perhaps more broadly, is this even something that's worth talking about or is it simply too far out of reach? Uh, thanks, Jake. Um, I think, you know, at the moment, the immediate focus is still on kind of disengagement and de-escalation, and that process is still ongoing. And I think the broader conversation of where this goes in terms of the boundary resolution, in terms of kind of resetting the relationship will depend on how this process evolves um, more broadly, and, and also kind of the broader impact that this, uh, that this might, have, might be having on the China-India relationship. I think what you've seen broadly from the two sides are statements emerging from China and India that suggest um, somewhat different goals uh, at the moment with China kind of talking about a restoration of the China-India relationship, uh, while India has been talking about the restoration of the status quo ante and where the, the situation at the boundary lay uh, in uh, at the end of April before the standoff itself started. Um, I think you've, you've, you, to the extent that Indian officials have mentioned the broader relationship, they have mentioned that, look, this, the, these, what they have called unprecedented developments um, are going to have a serious impact. Uh, that's something the foreign minister said on the broader relationship. And there is a sense in India, this is not quite, not surprising that India is focused very much on the boundary and, and, and thinks this might affect, uh, adversely affect the broader relationship. It's not surprising because I think India believes that um, China, the Chinese have violated the architecture, the kind of agreements, there's a whole set of agreements, protocols, and mechanisms that were designed essentially to do three things. One was to ensure that there would be peace and tranquility at the boundary and uh, resolve any such uh, kind of disputes that came up. Um, second, that it would facilitate a broader resolution, uh, as you talked about, a more permanent resolution at the boundary. And third, these this architecture of agreements and protocols and mechanisms was supposed to allow the rest of the relationship, the economic side, uh, cooperation, global governance issues, et cetera, to proceed and not be kind of uh, bogged down in, in terms of the political strains that they had on the boundary. Um, and so, you know, if, if the Indians are thinking that this, this set of agreements has been violated, that's going to affect how they feel about trying to resolve this more, uh, 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 this issue more broadly. Now, these agreements did offer, and they are the agreement, the, 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 this architecture is what is being used to disengage and de-escalate. Um, but I think they also did offer, and still do in some senses, the mechanisms for that permanent resolution you asked about. Uh, on the one hand, there's a special representatives mechanism, uh, which is at the national security advisor level uh, on the Indian side, and Yang JT is the representative on the Chinese side, and they met 22 times uh, in part to try to find a broader resolution. It hasn't really gone very far. The second thing that people have proposed that short of that, in the meantime, there have been a proposal to demarcate the line of actual control, particularly in the Western sector. There's, I think, about 16 different points where there are points of dispute. And the country's considered it particularly important for the two sides uh, as both sides have been upgrading their infrastructure and their sides of the line of actual control, uh, that they were gonna, this, their troops were gonna bump into each other a lot more often as, uh, as they patrol. They just had more access to this area. And so it was considered particularly important to try to kind of uh, stabilize the situation there. 
And there was agreement at one point to begin the process to clarify the line of actual control, but it's essentially been stalled since 2002. Uh, more recently, Prime Minister Modi has brought it up multiple times, but the Chinese have not shown interest. Why? Uh, one view is that the, the China is concerned it will prejudice their broader claims. Um, and uh, the, the, another view is that the Chinese like the ambiguity, so they, they can actually make such moves and kind of extend their, their claims. Um, you know, this is, the focus has largely been on the Western sector. The Eastern sector is uh, more kind of settled. Uh, Western sector is uh, where Ladakh, where these, these incidents are taking place, has been considered more critical by Beijing. And it's also kind of got this problem of not being as demarcated. Um, I will say just in terms of the last thing I'll say is, in terms of the way forward, now you could see at least two different ways this could turn out. There's a third, which is things can go really awry and the situation could escalate uh, into conflict. But the, the two more kind of plausible, uh, I would say, though you never know with escalation, is the one this essentially falls into a more kind of contentious adversarial relationship, but there's just a lower level of trust than there has been for the last uh, 20 odd years. Um, the second is the possibility that just like after uh, a boundary uh, standoff that occurred in the 80s uh, between China and India, that it actually leads the two countries to say, look, we need to actually figure out a way to resolve this. That, that 80s crisis led to a visit by the first Indian prime minister to visit Beijing after the 1962 war um, and this architecture being set up of agreements. The problem this time is somewhat different, I think, is that there's very little trust. So even if you come to a set of agreements, the question is the Indian side will say at least, uh, even if we reach an agreement, will the Chinese respect it? I think there's another aspect, which is Modi is being criticized at home for depending on personal diplomacy with Xi Jinping uh, to try to you know, keep the border stable. And people are drawing comparisons to Prime Minister Nehru's personal diplomacy with drone line saying that didn't work either. Um, so I think it is going to be uh, a little bit tougher uh, to, to, to get back to normal, so to speak, and, and get, but you, one thing that might make this plausible is if any leader could do it, it is Prime Minister Modi just because he does have a public backing. Great. Thanks, Tommy. Taylor, I, I want to move to you. Um, can you talk a little bit about to what degree is escalation on the Sino-Indian border part of sort of a larger pattern of China's assertiveness in its periphery? Um, and to what extent does Beijing think of the, of the China-India border um, on its own terms versus part of kind of more of an overall pattern um, in Asia? Great, yeah, no, thanks, Jake. It's a really great pleasure to be here. So clearly this spring, right, there has been a pattern of Chinese assertiveness in pretty much every issue relating to its territorial integrity or sovereignty as contested uh, with other states. And so one looks at uh, activity in the South China Sea uh, with all of the claimants there, in the East China Sea with Japan, Chinese military activity around uh, Taiwan, uh, the national security law in Hong Kong, uh, and so on, uh, up to and including uh, the border with India. So there's no doubt, right, there's been a real uh, push on uh, sovereignty this spring. And so I think the big question is to what degree is this related, sort of stemming from uh, some uh, common taproot of concern and to what degree are there different challenges in these areas that China's uh, seeking uh, to manage, which I think sort of really bleeds into the second uh, part of your question. Which is to say, I think on the China-India border, certainly there are things that uh, do concern China. And so if one tries to sort of spin a counterfactual, this was 2019 instead of 2020, um, and all of the events that 
may have been motivating China happened then with China still acting on the border? My sense is yes, uh, because uh, you know if, if we look over the last decade, starting in and I think as Tommy mentioned, uh, the earlier incidents on the border in 2013 and 2014, like there's been growing tension uh, between China and India. There's also been a sort of a steady increase in the activity and presence of troops uh, from both sides along the line of active control, particularly in the Western sector. If you look at a chart of uh, sort of uh, what India views as transgressions or uh, moments when uh, Chinese forces cross what India views to be the line of active control, I mean, it's it's really rapidly increased over the last decade, and, and the bulk of those have occurred in the Western sector. And I won't sort of review uh, really all the reasons that I think led China to this point, except to note briefly, right, that, that China learned one lesson from Doklam in 2017, that perhaps it needed to pay much more attention to India on the border uh, than it had in the past, and, and sort of uh, be prepared to deal with what it uh, viewed then as an Indian provocation. You had the uh, creation of Ladakh as a federally administered Indian territory in the summer of 2019, and then all of the sort of infrastructure improvements that I think really shaped sort of Chinese perceptions and probably played a role in what they decided to do uh, this spring. And so in that sense, I think there are definitely specific drivers uh, one can point to, but the broader context would be that China uh, firstly has just um, adopted what I call a much more strident stance to sovereignty under Xi Jinping. And we've seen this in all of the outstanding territorial disputes, and this was sort of on sort of wide display in the spring of 2020. Uh, the second element would be here that I think there's some uh, link between the pandemic on the one hand and China's uh, sort of sensitive sensitivity to sovereignty uh, challenges on the other hand, and this idea when it's facing uh, sort of a rapid uh, decline in ties with the United States amid the pandemic, when it's dealing with culpability for the outbreak of the pandemic, in the international community, and it's when, when it's dealing with real economic challenges, it can't sort of afford to have any losses in, in, in these disputes over sovereignty that Xi Jinping has really linked to achievement of the China dream. And so I think that explains also why we see sort of a, a much broader uh, push that uh, China has made um, around its periphery in the last six months. If I can, I just want to add one thing on to what Tommy said in the spirit of having a conversation. Which is, I, I've come to the conclusion that you know the '93 and '96 agreements are just outdated, right? Because they were drafted at a time when uh, there may have been a line of actual control, but the two countries couldn't access it very frequently, and even when they could access it, they would barely come into contact with each other. So you might have had you know patrols on a weekly basis or something like that. And now both sides, you know, China first, and but India is caught up or is catching up, uh, have the ability to, you know, they built roads to these areas, they built uh, forward posts, they have airfields, and, and it's just a very different situation. So I think one way forward, and I, I hope it's the 86, 87 model and not the you know, 58 to 62 model, um, would be to think about what kind of agreement is needed now to take into account the fact that the situation along the line of action on both sides is just fundamentally different than when these agreements were reached. I, I think they're the sort of outlines I could I could think about, and I will I will dwell on them now, but happy to come back to it later. But but I think that's one thing that's worth sort of probing is you know do do we go back to where we were before with these agreements, or do we think about um, kind of new measures uh, that could be put in place to help bring stability and prevent another outbreak or another escalation situation of war like we saw in the evening of June 15th. Many thanks. Hey, if I could, in, in the spirit of conversation again, if I could just uh, jump in with a, maybe a question to both of you. One thing I've heard from some um, folks I've talked to in India was a 
sort of a notion that, hey, maybe these agreements we've had with the Chinese from our end were designed to do a certain set of things up to and including giving us the mechanisms for resolving the underlying disputes eventually over time. But maybe the Chinese really just viewed it as a, a holding process, a lot more like the Declaration of Conduct or Code of Conduct with uh, South China Sea claimants, that they're not actually interested in um, that broader objective. So while yes, these tactical changes are very significant, it used to take multiple weeks to get forces into some of these places that can now be accessed in 24 or 36 hours um, by road and immediately by air. Um, that that's all true, but one of the questions is: Has have have the two countries always had uh, a different vision of of what was possible, or or what the desired outcome was from having the mechanisms that were put in place over the past twenty years? I mean, I I think you know it's the things that have changed in the last few years is you know one of the things that Jayla pointed out, which is you know, you've seen now this is the fourth boundary standoff. Uh, or the military standoff because the, the 2017 one involved Bhutanese and Chinese uh, disputed territory. Uh, but this is the fourth such incident since, since 2013. Um, what are the two things that have changed since then? One is Xi Jinping's been in power. And second is, as Taylor mentioned, these countries just have an ability to operate in these areas. And 2013, 2014, and this one have all been uh, in, uh, in the Western sector. Uh, in a way, they have an ability to operate there in a way that they didn't. So I think, you know, there are some things that have made it different now. I think I can understand that people are now seeing the whole kind of set of incident, inc you know, the whole kind of set of agreements from this perspective uh, now, just because, you know, tempers are high to some extent and people are questioning and it, it reflects the lack of trust now. Uh, and I think that's going to be a serious problem. There is no trust right now. Uh, in that process. But I do think, you know, if you look back uh, when these sets of agreements put into place, um, I think, you know, neither country, for example, wanted war. Um, both countries did want to actually focus on uh, development. Uh, but what, has, what is the other thing that has changed since that time? Uh, in 1988 and in, uh, uh, it, well, 1988, the Indian foreign minister just pointed out yesterday, the Chinese and Indian economies were around the same size. Uh, now the power differential, and not just economic, but across the board, has changed considerably. Just in the economic sense, and uh, the economic side, uh, you've seen kind of China's economy about four and a half, five times India's size. Now, sometimes it's about kind of uh, ambitions changing. Sometimes it's about possibilities. You see different possibilities, but it could also be about insecurities increasing in in a, in a weird way. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's uh, we can look back. Uh, once this situation is resolved to see what the intentions were. But I, I don't think we have enough to know right now that, yes, goals might have been different, that both sides have had different ideas of when they want to resolve the situation, how they want to resolve the boundary uh, dispute. Uh, but I think, you know, there was, both sides had an incentive to build these agreements uh, over 20 years uh, because, you know, for the, for the Chinese side, I can see, look, there are bigger problems at hand, mostly to, to the East. Uh, why would you want to start um, uh, you know, uh, kind of go into a conflict uh, with India at the time. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Tommy, I wonder if I could uh, draw you out on something you mentioned earlier, which is you, uh, sort of the changing political incentives um, for Indian leadership in relations with China. Um, for Indian Prime Minister Modi, what's the political logic 
of maintaining good ties with China and, and how are the incentives sort of shifting? Um, and were they, I, I suppose, you know, you have these two uh, informal summits uh, in, in Wuhan and Chennai and, and um, that was, you know, you have this kind of overall positive vision. Um, was th did that ever have any substance to it? Um, but also, uh, will another one of those be possible or useful, seen as possible and useful in Indian politics going forward? I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, if you think about the two major parties, the BJP, the ruling party, um, the Congress party that, that led a coalition government um, uh, prior to 2014 for about 10 years, um, in both sides have essentially followed, you know, they, they always say they're different, but they've essentially followed the same kind of approach towards China, uh, which is kind of engaging China, um, trying to kind of, you know, stabilize the relationship, both to actually benefit from it, but also to keep it from um, preventing India from focusing on other goals, whether security or economic uh, or social. And uh, so you see, and that's been one leg. And then both sides have actually focused also on competing with China. And that aspect has included internal balancing, building Indian capabilities, you know, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the kind of uh, some of the major effort to kind of restart this infrastructure upgradation at the boundary was started by the previous government. Um, and they've also kind of focused on their external balancing, which is building this network of partners that includes the US, but Japan and others as well. So the approach has been broadly. Now, what you have seen, though, is politics being politics in a democracy. Uh, right now, both sides uh, on each side are, is competing to assert that they had been tougher on China and the other side did not do enough. And uh, Congress is going further. It's accusing the Modi government of playing down the seriousness of the PLA's steps uh, to protect his image as a strong man, so to speak. Uh, but so far, what we've seen is a broadly a rallying around the uh, flag effect um, in India. I, I do think, though, you know, there is going to be, there has been an impact on perceptions. Now, whether or not it constrains uh, any Indian government's hands down the line, I think remains to be seen. But we have seen uh, an impact, uh, a kind of an adverse impact on the Indian perceptions at the government level, at the elite level, at the public level uh, uh, towards China. And I think the, the June 15th incident, yes, but the boundary standoff has been going on since early May. And I would say that, you know, some of this kind of downturn in perceptions of China um, actually started, came from COVID. Uh, that had already been reinforcing kind of the competitive and uh, side of the India-China relationship. So I think you, know, you have seen a hardening of views, and I think it's been particularly striking on the public side where, you know, you've kind of seen the kind of anti-China sentiment you usually see. It's gone mainstream in a way that's usually reserved for Pakistan. And that is actually uh, problematic in terms of thinking about what you could do in the future. So, you know, could uh, Modi do one of these summits? Uh, yes, but there will be a lot of, uh, there will be a lot of, uh, you know, questions about it, and he'll be taking a risk, because if it, if there's another incident after that, um, and something that perhaps even more serious, uh, that will really impact the way uh, that the Indian public sees his kind of, you know, uh, strongman image, which he's actually used to his uh, benefit. Um, so I think you have seen that hardening abuse, uh, just to give you kind of one incident. You've heard of kind of a restaurant called Mainland China, uh, thinking about changing their name to Mainland Asia because people uh, are feeling that badly towards China. Um, more worrisome, I think, if I was China, is that there's been impact on policies, uh, particularly economic policies and 
technology policies uh, that the Indian government. Now, how far this impact goes, I think will depend and whether or not such a kind of summit will be possible, I think will depend on how this crisis evolves, uh, its duration and its eventual outcome. I think if there's a restoration of status quo ante, that does actually give Modi more space uh, than if India doesn't find uh, that outcome uh, forthcoming. Great. Vikram, I wonder if I can turn to you and to talk a little bit about the, the how this is being interpreted in US policy circles. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a change in the frequency or the intensity of Sino-Indian border clashes might affect US policy um, at its most basic level, should we worry more about India-China now than we do India-Pakistan, or at least as much? And, uh, and also, how does the India-China friction affect the India-Pakistan conflict? Um, great, uh, Jake, thanks. And, and Taylor and Tanvi, it's so great to be on a Zoom forum with you guys. Um, I, look, I think, first of all, for the last two decades, really, U.S. policy has been focusing on India kind of in its own right and trying to pull it away from looking at India in the context of its various bilateral tensions and looking at it as, you know, critical as a security partner, an economic partner, an opportunity, looking at it as, as, a, as sort of the, the anchor of stability in what's now called the Indo-Pacific. But that has also uh, tended to reinforce that the, the U.S. views South Asia as its own construct and East Asia kind of as, as its own construct. And what we're seeing right now is in sort of played out in real life how China, uh, for obvious reasons of just geography and its own strategic thinking, views your, you know, Asia as a whole um, and as uh, its nest, you know, critical sphere of influence for its own interests. And so, the, and so from the U.S. standpoint, what I think this does is it offers, uh, in a way, an opportunity for greater strategic alignment with India, because Indian perceptions of China and American perceptions of China's ambitions have been largely aligned. If you if you look to a surprising degree, India has backed up, um, you know, at least at the level of rhetoric, statements about a free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, it has uh, shown that its strategy aligns with the U.S. strategy, which looks different from the kind uh, what we both think. China wants to see in the region, which is sort of uh, a predominant Chinese influence throughout the Indo-Pacific AOR. And, um, and India's backed that up with not only the closening of relations that uh, Tanvi was talking about, with, but also practical uh, cooperation between militaries, the, you know, ramping up cooperation in the Quad. And so I think from the U.S. standpoint, it's sort of a, oh, look, China has overplayed their hand with India in a way that might accrue uh, to us strategically in terms of what India will be willing to do in this partnership. So I think I think in the United States, this has uh, been viewed a little bit as China showing its true colors in a way that might be viewed eventually in China as a, as a, as an error for, you know, I, I, before the forum started, we were talking about, we think the Chinese meant to do this. And most of us had a consensus that one, we don't know because the Chinese aren't going to, aren't going to tell us uh, really their version of events, but that it's likely that um, having fisticuffs lead to fatalities was not probably something the Chinese wanted to, to have happen. And they're seeing it play out in a pretty dramatic fashion and in ways that align with core U.S. Uh, priorities. So 
Um, you know, China is absolutely out of 5G for India. That's not going to happen. TikTok has been banned along with another 59 Chinese apps. And the Indians have shown a willingness to take what will be an economic hit, whether it's in terms of uh, banning low cost imports of things that are consumer staples for a lot of Indian citizens and, and are inexpensive because they from, come from China, all the way up to uh, bilateral investment in particularly the Indian technology sector, but also the canceling of road and rail projects and other things. So to the degree that China has viewed India as a strategic rival and a country it wants to see contained in terms of influence, but also a strategic opportunity and a market in which it wants to have access, that has gotten much more complicated for China, and it's done so in ways that um, would will be uh, viewed in the United States as favorable. Um, for the Indians, one of the big questions is what's the risk of uh, this kind of uh, frostiness with China lasting a long time? In particular, what's the economic risk? And in particular, what's the economic risk coming out of COVID? Um, because the Indian economy is going to be in, you know, is, is going to be seriously affected by COVID um, and in negative growth territory and is coming out of that without China and Chinese investment and Chinese economic integration is that uh, so much more difficult that it really makes it worth it to try to find a way back to at least some more limited, um, you know, openness to Chinese investment. And I think it's interesting because things like Google's announcement of $10 billion of investment in, in India are coming right at this moment. And they're, they're probably giving India a sense of confidence, which may or may not play out to be you know, valid, but a sense of confidence that there will be substitution, that Japan, Europe, the United States will start filling in some of the opportunities that had been uh, filled by China, which is invested, you know, over $10 billion in the Indian tech sector, for example. Um, the, the final area I would say is an interesting one, and it's a little complicated. In terms of defense, uh, the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum, where I, where I uh, advise on aerospace and defense issues, uh, was looking at how India is reacting on the border in terms of bolstering some of its equipment and things like that. And, you know, the first place India often turns is Russia because they have a lot of Russian systems. So there was a purchase of MiGs and Sukhois. But you have also seen, and the Indian military has seen and talked about the value of the American platforms that have been integrated into their system. Into their system. So Apache attack helicopters, uh, C-130s and C-17s getting people, getting forces up and down, um, uh, the M777, uh, artillery, which is able to be moved up to high high altitudes, and the surveillance and information sharing they've gotten from the United States. And I think this really crystallizes that value proposition from a strategic standpoint for the Indians, and the United States will be looking to, um, to basically show uh, how valuable this is going to be for India, this partnership. Very interesting. Taylor, let me take this opportunity to turn back to you. Um, you wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, uh, I believe it was last week, um, that you made an argument that was that was I found very interesting, and and I'm wondering if you can um, basically let me know if I understood it correctly. Um, you you sort of argued that uh, China's actions are not diversionary. Um, that is to say, uh, Xi Jinping is not trying to bolster support at home um, by being more aggressive towards India for the public's sake, but he might be doing so in the context of elite politics. 
or leadership politics in China. Um, I wonder if you can tell me if I understood that right, and if so, uh, talk about that a little more. And just a related follow-on question, which is, I think in, in the past, you've seen China uh, try to, in moments of tension with the United States, cultivate better ties with its neighbors. Hmm. Um, but what we're seeing right now is a moment where there are deep tensions with the United States, um, but also increasingly deep tensions uh, with the neighbors at the same time. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about the degree to which uh, that dynamic, how that dynamic is being understood in China and whether there are um, some analysts or schools of thought that, that um, see that as, as being ultimately problematic. Great, no, thank you. So yeah, turning first to the, the kind of diversionary signaling question. I mean, I was struck after the clash on the evening of June 15th, how little attention it received in the Chinese uh, press, particularly focusing on the party's main newspaper, the People's Daily, and then the government's uh, news agency, the Xinhua News Agency, because these are sort of authoritative um, uh, elements of China's uh, news and propaganda system. And there, you know, what was remarkable was um, there was no articles in the People's Daily at all, I think, for the, the week afterwards. Uh, and then on the Xinhua website, uh, the, the story never got above like the 13th place on the homepage, right? And it was always just a perfunctory statement. And so there is basically, I concluded, no effort to try to mobilize Chinese public opinion around what had happened on the border. And furthermore, uh, there was no effort to do so by revealing information about Chinese casualties um, as a way that might sort of tie China's hands and lead it to adopt a more sort of a robust response. And so I took all of that to be evidence that um, you know, this was probably, uh, or then the fi final element would be right, that this just suggested China was also trying to sort of maintain uh, some opening with India to pursue some kind of a diplomatic, uh, at least, um, not resolution, but, but disengagement or, or ceasefire or something to that effect, which is what I think you know, we're seeing uh, being negotiated now. Um, and, and so that's important. Now, the question would be, um, you know, did, did sort of, because China did overplay its hand, it, it did move, you know, in three or four places on the border against India simultaneously in early May. This was clearly, uh, that part of the operation uh, was clearly, you know, well, uh, was centrally coordinated because you can't, move that many troops in the Chinese system without authorization from much higher levels, probably the Central Military Commission and so forth. And so I think one idea would be that, and it's hard to find you know, hard data for this, so I, I want to clarify this is more of a speculation than <laughs> anything else, but you know, Xi Jinping is under a lot of pressure at the moment. Um, on the one hand, he's in a very strong position, uh, but on the other hand, that means he has more responsibility for when things go wrong. I think he sort of dodged the domestic questions about culpability for coronavirus by putting lower, putting in place uh, members of the Politburo itself to kind of go to Wuhan and sort the situation out. But nevertheless, in some senses with that, the buck still stopped with him. Uh, the really rapid decline of US-China relations, which of course has been on the decline for the last several years, but it really uh, sort of accelerated uh, in light of COVID uh, was also a huge political challenge uh, for Xi Jinping. And then the economy, which also kind of is another issue where the buck stops with him. And so one gets a sense, right, that this is a leader who domestically still needs to show that uh, he is uh, doing well on other issues and sovereignty issues would be one of those areas where uh, he then would believe that China would need 
to take a strong stand because there's a story that he could tell internally uh, to the degree that he's facing dissent uh, that nevertheless, he's kind of making uh, important strides and accomplishments. And so I think that would kind of be the story I would tell. Again, it's it's hard to get kind of hard, hard data uh, to access that, but I think it does make, you know, I think it's certainly plausible given what we do know and what we've seen with, with regards to sort of Chinese media and whipping up or not whipping up in this case, kind of Chinese public opinion. Now to your second question, um, and this may sort of dovetail with the first one, um, right, and another just trend we see in China, right, under Xi is really the centralization of policymaking under Xi, which means that um, the sort of Chinese interagency process or the Chinese uh, policymaking process where there's sort of wide consultation with all kind of relevant bureaucratic actors before a major decision is made may not always be working. And this, you know, partly could explain some of the assertiveness we've seen, but also suggests that, um, you know, that uh, China's willing uh, now to basically maintain good relations with its neighbors and to maintain, sorry, maintain bad relations with its neighbors while relations with the U.S. are deteriorating. And historically, right, Chinese brand strategy is always focused on kind of balancing relations among great powers, uh, neighboring countries, and then the developing world. And the idea is you never really want to have bad relations with two of these three groups of countries. And right now, China is precisely in a place where, you know, it, it's it's trending downward on all fronts. Um, and, and so one uh, sort of has to believe uh, eventually, right, that there will be some kind of a course correction. And you certainly see lots of, you know, somewhat uh, indirect and veiled criticisms of the fact that China is in, in, in a very turbulent international environment now, so that, you know, among, you know, from Chinese sort of analyst experts, suggesting that there is an opening for a recalibration or reorientation of policy. But on the other hand, if everything is so heavily centralized within Xi Jinping now, and if Xi Jinping has a greater appetite for risk or friction, and if Xi Jinping thinks that China is sort of strong enough now where it can weather uh, uh, those frictions, we, we may not see this reorientation. I think when we saw it in the past, uh, China was a weaker country, China was a less capable country, but always still a very strong country with a dominant geography, but nevertheless, a country that had to be a bit more judicious about, about um, um, how many uh, sort of poor relationships it would have in its diplomacy, especially because, of course, China has no natural allies and lots of neighbors, right? So it has to kind of think carefully about sort of avoiding a counterbalancing coalition. And so, I think it's too say. I think it's too early to say that China won't recalibrate because perhaps now the costs are really uh, sort of uh, laid out in stark relief. Right, this is the first time in 30 years that there have been any deaths in a territorial dispute involving China, and of course, the first time in you know 40 to 50 years, depending on how one wants to count, that there was deaths on the border with India or a clash of this magnitude. But e even more broadly, in terms of Chinese diplomacy, this is the first time you've seen a really deadly uh, clash on the border, and that may be something that does sort of underscore the risk. So on the one hand, if she might have a greater tolerance for friction in relation with other countries, but at least until now, China has tried to keep a lid on that friction below the threshold of armed conflict, and that threshold uh, was broken in a very brutal and ghastly way uh, in, in the Gaowan Valley on the evening of June 15th. Many thanks. So one, I mean, one, one thing on that, I, you know, in the past, as, as Taylor said, you know, there's, we've seen two different ways that China kind of gets itself out of these situations, at least. Um, one is a charm offensive with the neighbors. Um, and, you know, that kind of helps or stalls that countervailing coalition being built. The second has been 
kind of what people in the region will call a G2, which has come to an understanding with the US. And so one question I've heard from a number of, and not just, not just kind of Indian analysts, but also in Japan and now even in Australia, which is, you know, especially after Wang Yi's speech the other day, which is essentially, are they holding out for in the next administration where there'll be some, you know, a proposal of sorts to, uh, you know, have a new type of major power or great power uh, relationship sort of approach, which is, you know, let's not bother about these other things. Let's focus on cooperation on transnational issues on whether it's pandemics, whether it's climate change, uh, and that the US and China can come to some sort of accommodation, whether that's a Biden administration that might be focused on transnational issues or Trump administration that will be kind of drawing down in terms of alliances uh, and comes to a look, spheres of influence, world. what's wrong with that um, sort of approach. So, you know, the question that I am hearing is, is that part of what uh, Beijing sees as the solution to this, that it won't necessarily be the charm offensive, there might be like not much appetite for that, even in the recipient countries, but that the solution will be try to reach uh, an accommodation of sorts with the US. Well, I mean, that's really interesting to think about. It's something I should have mentioned earlier, which is that one consequence of the decline in relations with the US, and in some ways it doesn't keep China in check anymore in the region. So I think China's concluded that you know, we now have, that it now has very poor relations with the US. If you look at all the speeches being given in the last two weeks, uh, you can understand at least why they would come to that conclusion. And therefore they're sort of less willing um, or, or to go less incentive to do things uh, to repair the relationship with that administration they believe is probably unrepairable. So I suspect they are hoping or waiting to see what will happen uh, in the election. And certainly I think we'll view at least a change in administration as an opening of sorts. Uh, if there's no change in administration, I, I suspect that they will double down for a much more competitive uh, slog with the United States, which uh, we should all think about how that might unfold because uh, I'm not sure we've necessarily uh, thought down the road uh, that far. Um, either. So um, it, it, it's a very, really important point that you raise. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And um, I want to ask another question uh, for Tommy, but also uh, for uh, Vikram and Taylor, if, if you want to jump in, is uh, thinking about India's options for responding to a more assertive uh, Chinese stance towards India. What are India's options in East Asia? Um, whether as part of Act East, um, India or uh, Modi's Act East policy, or more broadly, I'm thinking: Is there room for or support for India to act more uh, forcefully or take a more muscular stance on, uh, you know, your given set of issues, Taiwan, South China Sea, um, but but more in the political and security arena as a way of putting pressure on China? And is that likely to happen? I mean, I think you're going to see you'll see, see India's focus remain in some ways. And uh, I've seen some commentary that this is not necessarily a good thing for the US, but I think the primary focus for India will be its own AOR, which is the, the boundary kind of on the continental side and the maritime zone, the Indian Ocean region. But I do think at this point, there is almost a consensus in India that what happens in the kind of East will not stay in the East. Um, and, you know, they are concerned about kind of some of the kind of not particularly, you know, China's not going to come and build artificial islands in the Indian Ocean uh, necessarily, uh, but it's this thing about will it not follow the rules? Um, and so you're starting to see that connection. So you have seen for, India's position in the South China Sea 
has been fairly kind of clear, which is that it supports kind of freedom of navigation. It has started, um, you know, talking a lot more about why this, why it's not an outsider, so to speak, in the South China Sea, that a lot of its trade goes through there, actually saying some of the same things that China does about the Indian Ocean. Um, you've also seen it kind of deepen relations with a lot of Southeast Asian countries. And there's a demand for that because India offers options, not the scale that China does of options, but it does offer an alternative. Um, you've seen on the defense and security side, India coordinating uh, a little bit uh, on security assistance because both offered to Indonesia and Vietnam. Um, India has a, you know, a, a relationship with Singapore that goes back, uh, a defense relationship that goes back a long way. Um, you're also seeing kind of more willingness to do things in terms of exercises. So you saw in US, India, Japan, Philippines, group sail through the South China Sea uh, last year. Um, you know, you've seen in India, Singapore, Thailand maritime exercise now. Uh, I think on Taiwan, what you will see is they will still be careful. You're not going to see India change. It's kind of uh, you know, one China policy, but you do see changes in emphasis. So, for example, India doesn't actually now ever say in statements that it, it doesn't reinforce its one China policy. It hasn't done that for years since China changed its position somewhat on Kashmir um, and on Arunachal Pradesh, which started, which it, it started claiming more forcefully. So, you do see changes in emphasis, and I think you will see uh, on Taiwan, for example, a willingness to do more economically. I think you know, they do, there is a defense, security, and intelligence relationship that you will not see visibly. But I think on the economic side, on the social side, you'll see greater connectivity. Um, it has not. We haven't seen an official announcement. It doesn't tend to be announced. But there have been reports that India is going to send one of its senior officials as ambassador uh, or kind of the, the head of its mission in Taiwan. Um, and that's a sign that India is serious about you know taking these relationships seriously, and it sees Taiwan also as a potentially uh, kind of important uh, economic partner um, as it seeks to kind of get, uh, you know, some of that investment that, um, that Vikram was talking about. So I think you'll see India willing to do more, um, but I think it's going to reinforce, maybe accelerate some trends that were already happening, but there will be still some lines that I think India will not cross because um, I think there still is that sense that if you cross too many lines, China can cross the lines, your red lines, uh, too. But I think you've already seen a certain amount of willingness, uh, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, I think the getting Australia into something like the quad exercise, into a quad exercise, the Malabar exercise, that was going to happen anyway. It had been signaled back in January. Um, but I think those steps, they'll just be more kind of uh, reinforcing of that. You're seeing Indians openly saying we should allow the US and Japan and Australia to have access to the Andaman Islands. Um, those kind of things are going to be different. The other space to watch uh, international organizations. I think you'll see India coordinating a lot more uh, with kind of like-minded partners to ensure uh, that uh, the Chinese influence there, at least to shape Chinese behavior and limit its influence if they see it as you know, uh, bad for their own interests uh, in these in institutions. Great. Well, in just a few minutes, we'll move to audience questions, but I want to um, send another question to Taylor. Um, you know, we, uh, there's been some sort of debate about um, whether a, a sort of aggressive behavior by Chinese troops at the individual or unit level, um, to what can we attribute uh, that cause? Is it 
would you, and, and obviously that has an approximate effect on sparking any of these uh, particular standoffs or it can, um, would you attribute that more to sort of a lack of dis discipline or professionalism? Um, or would you see it more as part of China's, the way China carries out its uh, military strategy? Um, <clears throat> it's a trigger question, but it's a really hard one to answer because we don't have a lot of insight into what happens at the unit level. I would say, uh, or make the following observation, right? One feature of the China-India tensions this spring has been fistfights, right? So there's a brawl at Nakala, a big brawl in Pondal Lake, and then the deadly brawl at Gaowan Valley. And so something has happened in the way in which the two, uh, the forces from both sides interact, you know, they, they basically seem to have changed the rules of engagement this spring. And I don't know, I don't know why, um, and I don't know which side decided to do it first. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, there's at least one instance uh, or one story that was published about a junior Indian officer uh, uh, punching a Chinese officer in the face at Nakala after the Chinese officer insulted the Indian officer's period, right? So, so, so this is a case where I think uh, on probably both sides, there's just been uh, some change in what they sort of think that, that they can do in, in sort of face of what they view as transgression. But on the other hand, if you look at the June evening of June 15th, no soldier from either side discharged a weapon, uh, which to me uh, at least reflects a pretty high level of discipline um, with respect to uh, what had been sort of the broader uh, rules of engagement. And so I, I suspect to the degree that uh, you are seeing individual units on the Chinese side uh, be aggressive at the very sort of local tactical level uh, that they believe that they are carrying out what they believe to be a lawful or not lawful, but what they believe to be an order from their superior, right, with, with respect to what they're supposed to do on the border. Because we've seen it in so many places that I don't think you could ascribe it to, you know, um, the sort of the breakdown of, of discipline among a particular unit, because each, each of these instances in Galwan or, or Pongo or where have you are all from different uh, at least border uh, defense regiments, if not different main force units. And so this would be not something that one could attribute to sort of the breakdown of discipline in one particular unit. So it's a tough question to answer because we just don't have a lot of insight. But 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 I am struck by how this this spring, in contrast to, you know, uh, to Doklam or 2013 or 14, where you really didn't have any fistfights. I guess if I take that back, in 2017, there was a fistfight uh, in Pongo Lake, and that maybe was the first one, and maybe that's sort of a sign of how things have changed. Um, and then there are, of course, all these videos coming out, and we don't know exactly when they were filmed or where they were filmed, but they do show, I mean, most of them do come from India, and they, they do show Chinese officers uh, misbehaving and, and acting in what might appear to be an undisciplined or unprofessional manner, but there are also a few that show, um, you know, uh, similar things happening with some Indian forces, which I just take again to be that there's some change in the rules of engagement that seem to have basically made fistfights uh, somehow permissible in a way that they really had been avoided uh, before. And that is an interesting question as to how that sort of came about um, and, and why something was not done uh, to sort of uh, arrest that development, which clearly had deadly consequences with, with uh, strategic ramifications and implications. Um, Jake, I just had two. Uh, I just had two uh, things I wanted to flag on, uh, on tying to both of these. So one is on whether they, there's opportunity east. I think that the the you know Tanvi's absolutely right. India is going to need to focus on its neighborhood. In particular, if you look at where um, 
you know, boundary disputes were all settled with Bangladesh not very long ago, um, but there's been a lot of tension over the citizenship <clears throat> bill and the changes potentially to the status of, of longtime residents of India that are that are that, that, that came from Bangladesh and whether they will become be rendered stateless or whether you know what that might lead to and then Nepal there's been a you know a sort of a, a, a you know an acceleration of the territorial dispute there with Nepal being much more assertive and I think India is war has is war going to be worrying about uh what uh, the Chinese relationship is with all of its neighbors, uh, you know, Sri Lanka, famously the Hamantota port issue, and of course, Pakistan, which uh, you had asked me about earlier, but where the deepening of the China-Pakistan relationship poses a, a very interesting strategic uh, challenge for India, because essentially, you know, India's, India's arch rival now has a big has a big buddy that has deeply integrated into its system and committed to its economic well-being and is increasingly vocally taking its side uh, when it comes to you know who's responsible for what happening in Kashmir and with the with the line of control with Pakistan. So the the you know the the Indians have to be looking at that and saying you know Pakistan seems to have got China into a position of being its being its muscle behind it on, on these issues. And so all of that mitigates towards uh, India focusing on its on its own region. On the, on the uh, Eastern friendly countries and the ASEAN countries and others, there's no doubt you'll keep having really good Indian ties to those countries. One interesting thing is how those countries view India's response to Chinese aggression and how they interpret Chinese willingness to go to deadly force, even with a major power like India, um, and whether there's a signaling impact of China's actions vis-a-vis -vis India on um, the claimants in the South China Sea and others all the way around to Taiwan, um, and what the Chinese are thinking about what that impact could be. So, uh, and I think in that sense, solidarity between India and other countries who face similar assertiveness from China uh, is, a, is an area of opportunity. And I expect that the Indians will try to continue or at least build on what they've done with ASEAN, with the Quad and with others, even if they're mostly focused in the immediate area, in their immediate neighborhood. Yeah, thank you. That's a great point. Um, uh, we just have a few minutes left here. So I wanna get in a question from the audience. We've had a couple questions related uh, to sort of Russia's role. So I wonder if I can, uh, Kick it to Taylor to talk about um, quickly about the Sino-Chinese uh, or Sino-Russian relationship and and basically um, it, are the Chinese or might the Chinese be leaning on the Russians to um, to be quiet about this right or or to and and more broadly to to restrain or roll back their relationship with India and for Tanvi um, and and Vikram um, how, what are the Indians doing? Uh, to maintain that relationship, and to what extent are they um, sort of willing to let uh, Russia um, fall more into kind of the Chinese camp and and, and substitute U.S. or other um, maybe Quad or Western partners in, in response? So maybe Taylor first. Sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep it uh, brief. I think um, yeah, the, the China-Russia relationship. People debate whether it's a proto-alliance or something else. I'm a bit more skeptical as to how deep it will evolve, but clearly they have lots of common interests which they pursue, but they have lots of points of friction. So for example, Russia sells Kilo submarines to Vietnam and obviously uh, arms India quite well in, in many areas. And so uh, that hasn't 
those relationships, which of course predate what happened on the border this year, haven't really prevented the flowering of you know, or, or the blooming, as it were, of Russia-China relationships in the past decade. And so I think you know, they're very happy to identify areas of cooperation and common interest and to pursue them aggressively. I think that there's a sense that they don't try necessarily to get uh, too involved in those areas where their interests may not be fully aligned. And I think uh, China, moreover, wants to probably handle India without any Russian help and, and to basically not be seen as somehow a reliance on another country to deal with its territory. And there's, of course, also a long history of kind of uh, Russia or the Soviet Union's involvement in the China-India border that we don't have time to go into, but it's quite interesting as well. But I I'll leave it there just so we have we have time to get the, the uh, others in. Um, so you, I think, you know, in some ways, um, India would like to see those areas of friction between China and Russia uh, increase and, um, you know, the areas of cooperation be limited. Uh, they have found the Russians, they, they want, the Indians want a good relationship with Russia for at least three reasons in the China, I mean, in the China context. One, uh, they do believe they want to, they, they, they think that China and Russia will eventually split, just as they did in the Cold War. And whenever there's an Sino-Soviet split, it has benefited India. When the two countries have been close, uh, close to each other, that has not been good for India. And so India hopes and it keeps appealing to the West that, you know, you need to make up with Russia uh, if you're focused on, on China. And don't, they don't tend to kind of understand American or Western concerns about what Russia has been doing as much because that's just not their priority, I guess. Um, second, it remains, Russia remains a key source of military equipment, spare parts, but also certain technology that only the Russians will supply uh, India. So one question for other countries uh, in kind of the West in particular is, are they willing to kind of pick up the slack there? Because uh, the Russians do offer that as a comparative. This is why you saw in the Indian defense minister go uh, to Russia. And then finally, another aspect, which is uh, India wants to keep Russia on side. So, you know, you don't want Russia can do Indian interests a lot of harm if, for example, they collaborate much more strongly with uh, China at international institutions, uh, whether that's the UN Security Council, and they can be very unhelpful to India uh, at the BRICS in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Very quickly, there are, however, Indian concerns, which I think sometimes are not appreciated enough about Russia, partly because the Indians never talk about it publicly. And that includes, and I think top most of that list, is the, 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 the fact that the Sino-Russian relationship is not just close, but in recent years has been growing, particularly in the defense and technology space. That has implications for India, and it's, since it's still buying these things. Um, second, they noticed the Russians have not been supportive publicly of the Indian stance. They have talked about respecting Chinese sovereignty and respecting Indian sovereignty. Um, and I think you see that the, 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 um, the, the kind of Indians have, I think, you know, let's see, they've signed these deals. Let's see how long the Russians take to deliver some of these things. Because they don't necessarily turn the tap off. Um, because the Russians have no interest in kind of driving India into U.S. arms entirely. But what the Russians have done in the past, when it's come to China-India uh, situations, uh, is that they just stall. They stall on supply. Uh, and so let's see how it plays out. But I think you'll see India continue to maintain that relationship. Uh, my only argument has been is that India should then ask the same questions of Russia that it does any other partner, which is, you know, how is that constraining India's options and what is it doing to India's strategic, uh, strategic landscape?
All right. Um, Vikram, do you have anything you want to add briefly on that? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to top uh, Tandy and, and, and Taylor. And I think she, she's exactly right. I think the key point is that vis-a-vis -vis Russia, I don't think the Indians, it is less a strategic partnership than it used to be. It is much more a, a partnership based on um, the economics of defense cooperation and the legacy of, of India having built all of its strategic systems on Russian systems. You don't quickly get a new nuclear submarine. You don't quickly change your missile architectures. You don't quickly alter those things. And so um, India's case to Western partners is, look, we, this, is, this is what we have. And this is going to take, this would be years and years before it went away. Um, and I think you don't see Russia backing India up the way the United States and a lot of its Western friends um, Israel, France, other countries are willing to back India up when it comes to what's happening on its borders. And that sort of shows the trajectory overall is just more in this direction. Great. And uh, there's so much more to talk about on these subjects, but we'll have to wrap it up there as we're out of time. Thank you very much to the panelists for sharing their insights with us. Uh, be sure to check out Tom V's and Taylor's books for more. There's a lot of good information in there um, and, and very well written as well. Um, goodbye to everyone uh, and stay safe. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.